Hi, this is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I run through the current version of my Sunday sermon. There is no God, because if even I were God, I would have created a better world. This is a very common thing to hear from people, and it leads a lot of people to think, well, maybe the world is a product of chaos, or in the ancient world, many people thought that, well, the world is a product of a substandard God because there's decay in the world, and a more spiritual God would have made a world in which there's no decay. Now, even a more, um, even more common, well, sometimes I look at the text that I write and it's like, is that, is that right? Even more common ideas, even more common, I gotta fix that. Let's try this again. Even more common are skeptical thoughts and feelings about the existence of a loving and a good creator God. The more we learn about even the natural world, the more we discover how little we actually know and just how much we can't control. The Dunning-Kruger effect is something that's fairly well known. I asked ChatGPT to um, give me a little explanation and it spits out pretty good English. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias in which people who lack knowledge or skill in a particular area overestimate their own abilities and performance while underestimating the abilities and performance of others who are more competent. And I think that's a rather pervasive thing. I went on to actually to ask ChatGPT if it was subject to the, to the Dunning-Kruger effect, and it told me it was not, which gave me a good laugh. And you can illustrate this in a lot of different ways. Um, you can all recognize a helicopter, and if I'd say, can you draw a helicopter? You'd say, sure. And then once you started the project of drawing a helicopter, most of us would find ourselves, well, we didn't really know that specifically exactly all the different pieces of a helicopter. What level of resolution can you use to describe the neighborhood you grew up in? Now, you say, well, I know the neighborhood like the back of my hand, but... You might not even know the back of your hand that well. And very quickly, a whole range of questions would arise with respect to details that you very much can't answer, even though you feel yourself extraordinarily familiar with, with the neighborhood you grew up in. Have you been able to arrange the details and outcomes of your life according to your desires? Most of you who have a few years on you, if you asked, well, did your life turn out the way you thought it would? Almost everybody says no. And then to get into the details about that, well, it gets pretty strange and um, maybe happy, maybe sad. How happy are you with your ability to manage the behaviors of those closest to you? As a pastor, I can tell you one of the most common things people are frustrated about and want to find a cat pastor about is to complain about those that they live with. Now, there's a story here in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus begins to get more specific with his disciples of exactly how things are going to go. They've been ministering in the Galilee, and they're going to head to Jerusalem. The Gospel of Luke makes a big deal about that. Hang on. Now, for you, that was no time at all, but for me, that was a few minutes, so I've kind of lost my train of thought, so here we go in the middle. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. It's very interesting because in many cases people will let you say anything you want, 
but it's when you actually do something that they pay attention and either object or applaud. Um, and Jesus has laid out righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we looked at these parables of the kingdom of heaven. But upon saying this, Peter, Peter took him aside, because apparently Peter was worried that he didn't want to embarrass the teacher in front of the other disciples. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. So, oh. Now, we've all got a script in our mind that we have, usually it's, it just arises implicitly within us. And um, we have a fair amount of confidence in it. And truth be told, we have very little basis for it. We navigate um, based on sort of an extremely short-term map, knowing almost zero of what will actually come of the decisions and actions that we do. Uh, we know very little, and we tend to be dominated by our imagined expedience. Now, Jesus almost universally has sort of the reputation in our culture as being a nice guy, and um, that reputation is there partly because a lot of people don't read the Bible much. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, Peter, Jesus calls Peter Satan. Now, if, you were, if you've been with this series long enough, you'll remember the... You'll remember the the temptations, and I think that's very much behind this in terms of Peter is tempting Jesus. Then Jesus said to his disciples, so in other words, Peter takes him aside and Peter says, oh, by the way, lose this whole thing. Jesus turns it around, calls him Satan, turns to the rest of the disciples and says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, this is sort of counter the autopilot we run on. Uh, we navigate by the expedient and we navigate by self-interest pretty much implicitly and concoct all sorts of justifications to rationalize the kinds of decisions we really want to make. And Jesus completely upends this. And if you remember back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus exhorted them, follow the narrow way, because broad is the way that leads to destruction. And Jesus says that our assumptions about world management are way off, and that following him is a way out of this confusion. He continues, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and they will reward each person according to what they have done. Now, some of you know where this is going because I'm going to keep going past the chapter break. Gasp, gasp. Now we have these all these lovely Bibles with chapter breaks in them. And we're going to see Jesus in the Father's glory with two of the Father's messengers. Um, the tough thing for Protestants who are downstream of the Reformation is our resistance to works righteousness. And... Pretty much universally in the New Testament, the final judgment is done according to our actions, not just our thoughts or our aspirations. And this, of course, is difficult because Jesus has basically told us we have very little understanding of how to navigate in this world. And if we have, um, 
If we have any wisdom at all, we will follow him and navigate the way he navigates, even though, again, for many of us, that seems very counterintuitive because, well, let's say you had 30 years of relatively peaceful life, but then this little public ministry you did only lasted three years, and it's really quite remarkable you survived three years because... Anybody knowing anything about the cultural, political, religious situation would have a very vivid understanding that um, with many of the things recorded in the gospel about you, uh, you'd be killed pretty quickly, and in fact, he was. The consistent message is that our faith begets actions, even if our actions don't qualify us for this grace that we receive, which gets worked out in the actions that we do. Jesus continues, truly I tell you, some of you are standing here, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I actually posted on Twitter a little thing about the history of interpretation in this verse. This verse has really only gotten seriously problematic in the last couple of hundred years. For the rest of the time, the church had not really a lot of trouble understanding this verse because there's all these questions about, well, what on earth do you mean by... um, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, the Son of Man part is easier to figure out. The Son of Man is the title that Jesus uses of himself in the Gospels, and you'll find it in Daniel 7. And this is a ruler to whom is given an eternal kingdom as the Ancient of Days puts down the beasts that plague the world. But what does coming in his kingdom mean? Um, And we can sort of cut that off because I don't want the whole sermon to be about this. It's come in Christ, it's come in his ministry, and it's coming through history. After six days, and usually when you preach this passage, you sort of stop there, but we're going to run right into the second part because I think in many ways the second part has a lot to say about the first part. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, even though he called Peter Satan. He obviously didn't kick him out of the club of the disciples. Jesus took him, took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, a lot of church fathers make a lot of the fact of, well, this, his clothes are glowing too. In other words, it's not just his skin or his flesh. This has seemed to rub off on his garments. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now notice, they're not paying any attention to the disciples. The disciples are almost bystanders here. Now, Peter, six days before, when Peter rolled out, you know, at least countering Jesus' plans of what was going forward, Peter, of course, had no idea about what would happen here on this mountain. How could he have? Because none of us really knows the future. And every given week we walk into, well, we always discover plenty of things that we never anticipated heading into that week. But then we have this big question, well, what on earth does this mean? He brings them up to the top of a mountain. He's joined by Moses and Elijah. We're given no understanding how anyone would identify them as Moses and Elijah. And he's transfigured, he's transformed, and his face shines like the sun. Now, if you've ever tried to stare at the sun, you notice that you can't. You turn your, you turn your face away, and as we'll see in a minute, when this happens all of a sudden, as it happens fairly often in Scripture, everybody sort of loses their stuff. Peter, of course, always to lead with his lip before he follows with his brain, says, Lord, It is good for us to be here. If you wish, 
I will put up three shelters, one for you, Moses, and one for Elijah. Um, are these three veils that you're going to try and turn down the wattage a little bit? While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now this obviously was a message that Peter should have paid more attention to earlier on because Peter, and we shouldn't point too closely at Peter in this, has been trying to influence Jesus and be his manager because Peter believes he knows exactly what should happen as the world unfolds. There's Now, Peter also sort of establishes this perpetual desire to put God in a bottle. You might remember Jim Croce's song, If I Could Put Time in a Bottle. This week I was speaking with a, a, a Christian scholar who's also a, a dad taking care of his four daughters, a stay-at-home dad, his wife goes out and works. And we talked about the fact that perpetually throughout the Christian church, the Christian church is always trying to scheme how can we sort of make the amazing experiences of the Christian life stay and how can we prime the pump so that our children can benefit from them too. And in many ways, so many churches, including the Christian Reformed Church, is just simply all about working these things so that we can, well, not leave it up to God or not leave it up to chance or not leave it up to whatever you think runs the world and make sure we secure the outcomes we want. Now go back and remember what I said about Peter and notice that again, Peter didn't see any of this coming. This is the second time God has spoken from heaven with an experience of Jesus. The first time was the baptism. When the disciples heard this, now keep in mind, this is all about light. When it comes to Jesus' crucifixion, it's all going to be about darkness. When the disciples heard this from the sky, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now you see this again and again in the Bible. You find this with Abraham in Genesis. We were just reading that with the men's group the other night. The consistent image is that is when we are given a peek into the realm of God, we are terrified and undone. Now pay attention to the fact that Jesus' face shone like the sun. And again, you can't look at the sun. It's shining too brightly. And if you look at the sun, you can't see anything else. And it hurts your eyes. And if you stare into the sun long enough, it's rather a remarkable thing. You will hurt your eyes and you can go blind. If you had the ability to endure the pain involved of staring at the sun, well, it can damage you. But then Jesus very gently touches them and encourages them, which is, again, a standard part of this story. Part of the message is that Jesus, in that moment, was transmitting a beauty and a brilliance that can crush and kill, something we don't think about very often. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone that you have seen until the Son of Man, again, he uses that term again, that term again, has been raised from the dead. Now, what we know about Peter and the apostles were that they're pretty much clueless throughout the whole of Jesus' ministry. Not only um, if they had told other people about this, it's really hard to know what other people would have thought, and also about the business of rising from the dead, it seems to be something they completely forgot about in the darkness of the cross, so that when Easter morning came about, 
Only the women went to the tomb to try to finish their embalming job on Jesus, and Peter and the rest of the older apostles stayed hidden. Peter's been there for the whole show. He's been given the inside scoop, and it won't stop him from denying Jesus three times when the big moment arises. In other words, Peter thinks he, should, he knows how to run this show, but in truth, he can't see anything that's coming down the road. And even when there's a moment for him to stand up and be counted, he folds like a cheap suit. Now, what I think this story is about, at least initially, and one part of it, is its encouragement to Jesus' inner circle for what is about to come because they will be tested, and in fact, Peter, most dramatically, will fail. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. And then suddenly you might say, Well, what? what Where's the restoring all things part? In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist, but it seems pretty clear they didn't understand a whole lot beyond that. Because wasn't it just this reference, and this is why these passages should stay together and not be taken apart. We started this whole business with Jesus telling them, this is exactly what's going to happen and they don't want it to happen, and they forget it, just like most of the things that we think and say and feel. We're so busy living in the moment, navigating through scripts that we have very little knowledge of, and that, oh, okay, John the Baptist, Elijah. Now, the strangeness of this symbolic world is beginning to emerge in this story. Here, Elijah does show, but John the Baptist is clearly identified as playing the role of Elijah. Got to fix that spelling mistake. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we've seen a glimpse, not of how Elijah was in Israel, but how Elijah was trans what tra Elijah was transformed into. And remember the stories of Elijah? Yeah, he could be pretty bold and pretty big at some points. And then when Jezebel says something, he runs like a little girl. Moses was stammering. Uh, Moses was a stammering, failed revolutionary that God transformed after he was 80 years old in a call in the wilderness by a burning bush, and which he didn't really want to respond to. Elijah fled from the threats of Jezebel after the glory of Carmel, but God had more plans for him. And so now we see them transfigured, transformed, just for a glimpse and I think this is very much for Peter, James, and John. Now, as I mentioned before, Moses, a would-be revolutionary who killed an Egyptian when he saw him beating a child of Israel and had to run away because he was afraid for his life, um, Moses gets transformed. Elijah ran like a scared child at the threats of Jezebel. He gets transformed. Peter thought he had the right stuff to manage Christ, but we will see Peter fail. Will Peter get transformed? We are certainly not better than our spiritual betters. We imagine we can evaluate the world because we are all subject to a spiritual Dunning-Kruger effect. 
we all know what God should be. We all know what God should do. We all sit in the judgment seat and imagine that we can decide. Well, in some cases, we have to sort of decide a bunch of things, but we're just so certain about it. God's pursuit of us, however, will not be put off quite so easily. We can see that in Moses, Elijah, and Peter. And it certainly isn't the case that Peter seems worthy of all of this. Because, of course, Peter, never, Lord, this judgment will never, this crucifixion, this will never happen to you. Get behind me. Peter's implicit matter, Peter himself had an implicit narrative of deliverance. He thought he knew how the world would be saved, and Jesus going to a cross was surely not part of it. Jesus will have none of it. Peter's narrative, oh, Jesus is very clear that the path to glory passes through the cross. Now, my favorite essay sermon written on glory is by C.S. Lewis, and you can find it in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. He notes that, By ceasing for a moment to consider my own wants, I have begun to learn better what I really wanted. And I think... This is part of why the deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me is a piece of this overall narrative that both includes this dramatic failure of Peter and this transfiguration of Christ, Moses, and Elijah that Peter is invited to glimpse. Because there's a connection between shining and beauty and worship and attention. The sun is the kind of thing that we can't look at because it's simply too powerful And that's very clear in this. Peter thinks he knows the road and the road is going to be a certain way and that's all going to be fine. And Peter is called Satan because, in fact, that road is a temptation for Christ, a temptation he must deny and take another road. There's a luminosity in the beauty of nature. And, in fact, in some ways, nature is a guide. We might look at a beautiful landscape and say, well, I understand that. That water is blue. Now, If you visit the Canadian Rockies, you can find all these little signs about why the water there is blue. One of my children said the water there looks like Gatorade, and um, that is in fact what the water looks like. And it just makes everything shocking and strikingly beautiful, and we might not even have any clue as to why on earth craggy rocks and glaciers and trees and and a colored lake colored by the silt from glaciers, this crushed up stone would be so beautiful to us to provoke us to travel thousands of miles and spend thousands of dollars just to see it. There's a luminosity in the beauty of nature. Something is shining through. Biblical um, symbolism about light is that something that is so powerful it grabs our attention and drowns out all other things that can be seen. And that's exactly what the sun does. On one hand, if there's light coming, we shelter our eyes from it, but we can't really get rid of it from our attention. Lewis says, we have been, we have been mere spectators. And, and isn't that exactly what happens on the transfiguration? You see Jesus and Moses and Elijah talking, and they haven't come down and are giving a message to Peter, James, and John that they really must. Peter, James, and John, sort of like the beauty of nature around us seems, basically, we're bystanders, we're spectators, we're just passive observers. It's not after the show that Jesus taps them on the shoulder and says, it's okay. 
it's okay. We've been mere spectators. The beauty of the Canadian Rockies is there whether I go and see it or not. Beauty has smiled, but not to welcome us. Her face has turned in our direction, but not to see us. We have not been accepted, welcomed, or taken into the dance. And so we pursue her. It's not the physical objects that I'm speaking of, Lewis continues, but the indescribable something of which they become for a moment the messengers. And part of the bitterness which mixes with the sweetness of that message is due to the fact that it seldom seems to be a message intended for us. You almost have the sense that, well, this is a meeting that has gone on regularly between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And this, well, the disciples just sort of get a glimpse into this one meeting of the group, but they're really not a part of it. But rather something that we have overheard. By bitterness, I mean pain, not resentment. We should hardly dare to ask that any notice be taken of ourselves. The lake doesn't care, the mountain doesn't care, but we pine. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, and I think that is exactly what many people who say, well, I can't believe in a God because nature seems not to notice us. Well, yes, you're right. Do you want these? Nature seems not to notice. Nature seems not to care. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. If you're in a national park and you meet a bear, well, if you have the guts, don't you want to engage with the bear, engage with the deer? You go to the national park and you find people feeding squirrels and the smaller animals all the time. And the birds, well, why? Why on earth do you want to feed the birds? You want to have a relationship with the bird. You want to engage the bird. You want to be a part of this beauty, but you don't quite know why. But when it comes to a bird or a squirrel, it's not quite up so big as, let's say, a grizzly. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory, in the sense describes, becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. What did the Lord say out of the cloud? This is my son. Listen to him. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. We do not want merely to see beauty, though. God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. At present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door, we discern the freshness and the purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that this will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then we will put on its glory, or rather, the greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. And in there, in beyond nature, we shall eat of the tree of life, 
At present, if we are reborn in Christ, the spirit in us lives directly on God, but the mind and still more the body receives life from him through a thousand removes, through our ancestors, through our food, through the elements. The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implants in matter when he made the world are what we now call physical pleasures. And even thus filtered, they are too much for our present management. We say there is no God because if I even if even I were God, I would not have cre- I would have created a better world. Really? Could you have made the Canadian Rockies? Would you have thought to color the lakes with the silt from the glaciers? Is that what you imagine? You were smart enough to think of in advance? We should lay down our little Dunning-Kruger effect and look at the big picture. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. Amen.